I got a question for you, and this is not one um, that I want you to discuss with your neighbor at all. I just want you to think about it. Think about this question. Have you ever said something like this? My God would never do that. My God would never do something like that. My God would always do something like this. My God is always this way. My God would never do something like that. Those are the kinds of things I think people say, sometimes out loud, sometimes in their hearts. And the interesting thing about that, I think it presupposes three things. Uh, that, number one, you understand completely what is going on. You understand totally what is happening at the moment. Uh, number, number two, that you know what God is up to. Number three, that you know what God is not up to. So, when you say a categorical statement like that, you are presupposing that you understand completely what is going on at the moment. That you know what God is up to, and you know exactly what God is not up to. In a way, I think it's a, a way that sometimes we, honestly, we judge God. And that's the title of my sermon today, is Judging God. Very often I think we're afraid that God is judging us. That's why some people don't like to come to church. It's because they feel judged by God and by his people. And so therefore I'm not going to go in that place because I am living this way and they would probably have a couple things to say about it. And then we worry about what happens at the end of our lives or when, uh, when we might stand before some kind of judgment seat of Christ and all of our Thoughts, all of our words, and all of our actions will be judged. We, we tend to say to people, don't judge me. So judgment is this really complicated, very heavy topic that all of us are both afraid of and engage in. We judge people based upon the color of their skin. We judge people based upon the clothes they wear. We judge people based upon the amount of education they've had or how they talk. I remember one time in college, there was this girl, I was in this large chemistry class, maybe as big as this room is, and I just remember looking at her daily and thinking, oh wow, she is beautiful. And I wonder if I could ever get to know her a little bit. And then one time in this large class, which was unusual, the teacher asked for some feedback, and she opened her mouth and she spoke. And like every romantic thought fled from my mind. <laughs> it was the weirdest thing. In my heart, I, I mean, there was, not, there was not a rush to judgment. There was, there was no time 
at all between when she opened her mouth and when I judged her. I was like, okay, forget that. We're not going there. Uh-uh. I could not handle that. <laughs> so I think we do this kind of thing on a regular basis. It's, it's a difficult thing. And when I say that we judge God, some of you are going, I don't, I, I don't judge God. I, I couldn't do that. I, I think that's no way. No way. Let me, I'm a pastor. I've made a habit of judging God. Whenever he doesn't meet my expectations. And that's quite often in my mind. Because I presuppose that I understand completely what's going on. I presuppose that I know what God is up to. And I presuppose that I know what God is not up to. And when he doesn't meet my expectations, I judge him. I remember one time in the car having my quiet time, which was a very loud quiet time. And I remember screaming at God, saying things like, do you enjoy watching me squirm? Are you some kind of a mean God? Is that what you are? Tell you what, if you are not a mean God, which it appears at the moment that you are, then either change my heart so I can go along with this thing you've created, or change... My circumstances, one of the two. Well, you don't have to look very far in the Bible to find people who are judging God. And this, frankly, this passage that we're going to look at today is one of the most obvious places where literally God is taken into a courtroom of sorts. So if you have a Bible, I'll open up to Mark chapter 14. We're getting near the end of... Chapter 14, the really long chapter, by the way. And Jesus goes before the Sanhedrin. Now, let me explain that the Sanhedrin is kind of like the Jewish Supreme Court. It's kind of like the legislature and the Supreme Court all rolled into one. The only thing it's not is the executive branch. So, verse 53. They took Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests, the elders, and the teachers of the law came together. Now, let's remember from whence we have come. Where has Jesus come from just now? The Garden of Gethsemane, right? About what time of the day is it? Well, it's not day, it's night, right? It's early in the morning. I'm going, what high court convenes at this time in the dead of night? It's not a good sign for Jesus. Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. Well, good for Peter. At least he's staying warm. Meanwhile, Jesus is being taken into a courtroom in the dead of night. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any. <laughs> this is a great sentence. What does this tell us? This tells us that the verdict has already been reached. They're just looking for ways to make it legal. It's kind of like when 
you or I decide that the Bible says something, and then we go look to try and prove it in the Bible. It's the same kind of thing. It's a very dangerous practice because when you do that, you make the Bible say things it's not supposed to say. And when you do this, you come up with verdicts you're not supposed to come up with. So they're looking for evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death. (laughs) So they've got the whole thing's rigged. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Now, back in those times, no testimony could be established as true unless at least two witnesses said the exact same thing. We actually have brought this into our legal system from the biblical understanding of how things are settled in the court of law. That's why we have witnesses who give testimony. Same idea, right? But nobody is giving the same testimony about Jesus. Everybody's got a different slant on what is going on, which means that some people are lying or they're not remembering correctly and they're talking about it anyway. And so this is very frustrating to a group of people who have already passed judgment in their head because they think, we've got to find the evidence. It's got to be in here someplace. We've got to have somebody say the same thing twice. Then some stood up, verse 57, and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days will build another not made with hands. Yet even their testimony did not agree. Okay, so now we're talking about Jesus being in the temple. We talked about this earlier in the Gospel of Mark. His disciples and he are going in the temple, and it's this grandiose edifice, these huge stones, and, uh, you know, Jesus says that not one stone will be left upon another in terms of the temple. Now, if, if you were saying that kind of stuff in ancient Israel, it's about like saying, I'm going to burn a million American flags all in one day, only this is worse. Because the Jewish temple is not only the seat of government, but it's the seat of religion, spirituality. It's the seat of everything. The temple is everything. It's the place where God dwells. The Shekinah glory. You guys remember that Indiana Jones movie where they were looking for the lost Ark of the Covenant? Remember when they found it? On the lid, there were these uh, two... Uh, angels with outstretched wings. Well, according to the biblical account, the glory of God, the Shekinah of God, the, the bright light of God's presence would, would, would manifest itself between those wings and above that ark. So they weren't too far off in the movie when that light comes out of the ark and kills all those Nazis. I don't know. To me, it's like, don't mess with the Ark of the Covenant because that's holy. That's the holiest place on the planet. That's why the temple was so important to the Jews. It's because it's the place where the Shekinah of God was displayed. And only 
the high priest got to see it once a year, and he had to go through all these rituals to make sure he didn't get killed. In fact, they were so afraid the high priest, even the high priest, might die the day that he went into the Holy of Holies with the Shekinah of God, that they actually had a rope tied around his waist and bells on his robe. So, like, if they heard him, like, moving around in there, they knew, and they heard the bells tinkling, they knew everything was fine. But if the bells stopped tinkling and the rope went slack, then they could pull him out because nobody wanted to go in there to get him. So the temple was huge in their minds. And you spoke against the temple as what they're thinking Jesus did here. And Jesus did say something about destroy this temple in three days. It, I will, it, I know. Three days, um, I will, uh, it will rise again. What's the exact wording on that? Does anybody remember? Pardon? I will raise it again. Thank you very much. Yes. And then the gospel writer says, for our benefit, he's referring to his bo- himself, his body. He was referring to his resurrection. Because the glory of God was in the person of Jesus. And the temple was on its last hurrah. Verse 60, then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Now, if there's a time to speak in your own defense, now would be the time. But Jesus gives no answer. And why doesn't Jesus give an answer? He doesn't give an answer. Because primarily, this is what is prophesied in the Old Testament. Isaiah said of the suffering servant that as a sheep is silent before its shearers, so he opened not his mouth. And Jesus, knowing that he had spoken freely in the temple courts and in the villages and the countryside, had already said what he needed to say. And he's not going to refute these guys who are bringing false charges against him because he is fulfilling prophecy, because he's already said the word of God. And I'll give you another reason why he didn't say anything, because he wanted to die. Make no mistake about this. When we're in the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus prayed, struggling with God in there. He came to the conviction that this is what is going to happen. He was going to submit himself to God's will for him and become a sacrifice. And so he knows what's going to happen. And he's given himself to it. So he's fulfilling prophecy even in his silence. But now the high priest ups the ante. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? And let me tell you, right now, Jesus gives the most succinct answer in, I think, all of Scripture. He says, I am. Verse 62, I am. Now, I think he was answering the question, obviously. Yes, I am the Messiah. 
I am the blessed one, the son of the blessed one. But this also had connotations. They were echoes of bells that were ringing from back when Moses was spoken to by God in the fiery bush, the bush, the bush that burned but did not burn up. Because when Moses said, you want me to go back and tell the, the Israelites to follow me and to come out of Egypt, who should I say sent me? God answers with his name, which is I am. I am. Tell them I am sent you. And so Jesus answers the question, I am. And if you're reading the Gospels, you cannot help but think, I think I hear the faint ringing of a bell from Exodus and the freeing of the people of Israel. Because you know what? The whole world is about to be freed right here. And Jesus takes it up even further. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Let me repeat, repeat that. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Okay, now Jesus has cranked it up so loud that nobody can misunderstand what he's saying. He is referencing Old Testament scriptures yet again. Let me go to them here. The Son of Man name, right? Son of Man. What does that mean? Well, that comes from Daniel. Let me read Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. This is what the prophet Daniel says. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority glory and sovereign power, all peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So Jesus identifies himself now with the prophecies from Daniel, that he is the blessed one indeed. He is the one who has given all authority, glory, and sovereign power. He also references... Psalm 110. And Psalm 110 says this, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. You will rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle, arrayed in holy majesty. From the womb of the dawn, you will receive the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. Holy moly. Jesus is being judged and he says, you know what? Guess who's the judge? I'm going to judge you. I am the one the Scriptures have spoken of. He takes it exponentially higher. The priest cannot handle this kind of information. And so in verse 63, the high priest 
tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? Now, (laughs) this is the ironic thing. In Leviticus, in Leviticus chapter 21, verse 10, the Lord has some instructions for the high priest. And this is what the Lord says, that the high priest is never to tear his clothes in anger like that, ever. It's not allowed if you're the high priest. So the ironies just keep building. Here we have the righteous one, Jesus, being tried for crimes he did not commit by men who are perverting justice, probably buying the testimony of false witnesses who can't get their act together, and then a priest who tears his clothes, which is against the law. Meanwhile, the priest uses all the right religious words. Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I'm not going to mention his name because he's too high, he's too exalted, he's too mighty. I would just call him by euphemism, the Blessed One. This is like a guy, one of my friends who was a counselor, told me about. We were buddies. We were sitting down. I'm I'm pretty sure um, we were at a bar having a beer, and um, my friend, the counselor, said that there was this guy that he was counseling that really, really bothered him. I go, what's going on? He goes, well, you know, he's an elder in his church. He's like this pillar of the church community, and he would never utter a cuss word to save his life, but he's stooping his secretary and other women in his office, and it made my friend, the counselor, kind of sick that he's dealing with that kind of hypocrisy. But, of course, when you're a counselor, you've got to leave that at the bar and be professional when you get into the counseling office. This is the kind of folk we're dealing with here who are judging Jesus. They are everything you never want to be as a religious person. You have heard the blasphemy, what do you think? And then they all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists and said, Prophesy! And the guards took him and beat him. Now this, if you're reading Shakespeare, it couldn't get any more ironic than this. The Gospel of Mark, I think, is at its finest here. They blindfold Jesus, the only one who really knows what's going on. They suppose they know what God is up to and how God acts, but they don't. They suppose they know what God is not up to, but they have no clue. They suppose they understand what's going on, but they don't know what's going on. They can see, but Jesus is blindfolded. He's the only one who really knows what's going on. Furthermore, people are hitting him after he's blindfolded, saying, prophesy. 
in other Gospels tell us who hit you. But Jesus has already prophesied everything going on up to this point. If you're a reader, you know that A, the disciples were predicted to scatter, which they did. You know that B, he was going to be arrested and brought before the chief priests and rulers of the law, which has happened. You know that he was predicting that he was going to be killed, which it looks like is going to happen because they're looking for a way to kill him. Jesus has prophesied. We're going as readers. Oh, I, I think maybe he might be the one who's going to come and judge the world. I, I think these guys are in trouble. I think this is a bad deal. I, I think this is scary. And you'd be right. You'd be right. I just like to go over the Bible story sometime in detail. Because there's so much of it lost on us. A, because it's 2,000 years ago. And B, because we're not Jewish. We don't get it. And this is a statement that I think is true. If we don't allow Jesus to be God, we will crucify him. If we don't allow Jesus to be God, because he is, then we will attempt to crucify him. One of the saddest parts about being a pastor is watching people walk away from their faith. And normally what happens is something like this. Life turns and they never saw it coming. Their best friend deserts them. And how could a good God allow that to happen? Or their marriage goes sour. And a spouse has an affair, a spouse leaves. And it shakes their faith to the core. Because their God would never do something like this, never allow this to happen. We stood before Him. We said our vows. He's just sitting there letting it happen. Maybe the biggest faith shaker I've ever seen is when children die. Because, you know, they have done nothing to deserve this. They run out, run out in the street. They catch some kind of a virus. And the parent goes through the deepest crisis of faith imaginable, sometimes turning his or her back on God, leaving the church, never having anything more to do with organized religion or ever praying again. Because they're so angry. The thing they thought God would never allow to happen, he allowed to happen. 
It's kind of that way in, uh, in this book. It's quite the bestseller, The Shack by William Paul Young. This really isn't going to kill the book for you because you find out, like in the first couple pages, that his child dies. Mac is the main character, Mackenzie. His child dies. She's abducted and then killed. Little girl. And this begins what Mac calls the period of his life named the Great Sadness. And the book goes through some twists and turns, and it's... At one point, we find Mac is in this cave along with a personification of wisdom, a woman named Sophia. That's what the Greek word Sophia means, is wisdom. And he finds himself in a cave with her. And Mac realizes that he's there for judgment. I'd like to read you a part of this book. At first he thinks it's him who's going to be judged. And then wisdom tells him, no, no, it's, uh, it's you who are going to be the judge. So who is, is it that I'm supposed to judge? God, she paused, and the human race. She said it as if it was of no particular consequence. It simply rolled off her tongue as if this were a daily occurrence. Mac was dumbfounded. You've got to be kidding, he exclaimed. Why not? Surely there are many people in your world you think deserve judgment. There must be at least a few who are to blame for so much of the pain and suffering what about the greedy who feed off the poor of the world? What about the ones who sacrifice their young children to war? What about the men who beat their wives without cause, Mackenzie? What about the fathers who beat their sons for no reason but to assuage their own suffering? Don't they deserve judgment, Mackenzie? Mac could sense the depths of his unresolved anger rising like a flood of fury. He sank back into the chair, trying to maintain his balance against an onslaught of images, but he could feel his control ebbing away. His stomach nodded as he clenched his fists, his breathing coming short and quick. And what about the man who preys on innocent little girls? What about him, Mackenzie? Is that man guilty? Should he be judged? Yes! screamed Mac. Damn him to hell! Is he to blame for your loss? Yes! What about his father, the man who twisted his son into a terror? What about him? Yes, him too! How far do we go back, Mackenzie? This legacy of brokenness goes all the way back to Adam. What about him? But why stop there? What about God? God started this whole thing. Is God to blame? Mac was reeling. He didn't feel like a judge at all, but rather the one on trial. The woman was unrelenting. 
Isn't this where you are stuck, Mackenzie? Isn't this what fuels the great sadness that God cannot be trusted? Surely a father like you can judge thee, father. Again, his anger rose like a towering flame. He wanted to lash out, but she was right, and there was no point in denying it. She continued, Isn't that your just complaint? Isn't it, Mackenzie, that God has failed you, that he failed Missy, your little girl? That before the creation, God knew that one day your Missy would be brutalized, and still he created And then he allowed that twisted soul to snatch her from your loving arms when he had the power to stop him. Isn't God to blame, Mackenzie? Mac was looking at the floor, a flurry of images pulling his emotions in every direction. Finally, he said it louder than he intended and pointed his finger right at her. Yes, God is to blame. The accusation hung in the room and the gavel fell in his heart. Then, she said with finality, if you are able to judge God so easily, then certainly you can judge the world. Again, she spoke without emotion. You must choose two of your children to spend eternity in God's new heaven and new earth, but only two. What? He erupted, turning to her in disbelief. And you must choose three of your children to spend eternity in hell. Mac couldn't believe what he was hearing and started to panic. Mackenzie, her voice now came as calm and wonderful as he had first heard it. I'm only asking you to do something that you believe God does. He knows every person ever conceived, and he knows them so much deeper and clearer than you will ever know your own children. He loves each one according to his knowledge of the being of that son or daughter. You believe he will condemn most to an eternity of torment away from his presence and apart from his love. Is that not true? I I, I suppose I do. I, I just never thought about it like that. He was stumbling over his own words in his shock. I just assumed that somehow God could do that. Talking about hell was always a sort of an abstract con- conversation, not about anyone I, I truly... Mac hesitated, realizing that what he was about to say would sound ugly. Not, not about anyone that I truly cared about. So you suppose then that God does this easily, but you cannot? Come now, Mackenzie. Which three of your five children will you sentence to hell? Katie is struggling with you the most right now. She retreats you badly and has said hurtful things to you. Perhaps she is the first and most logical choice. What about her? You are the judge, Mackenzie, and you must choose. I don't want to be the judge, he said, standing up. Max's mind was racing. This couldn't be real. How could God ask him to choose among his own children? There was no way he could sentence Katie or any of his other children to an eternity of hell just because she had sinned against him, even if Katie or Josh or John or Tyler committed some heinous crime. He still wouldn't do it. He couldn't. For him, it wasn't about their performance. It was about his love for them. I I can't do this, he said softly. You must, she replied. I can't do this, he said louder and more vehemently. You must, she said again, her voice softer. I will 
not do this. Mac yelled, his blood boiling hot inside of him. You must, she whispered. I can't. I, I can't. I, I won't, he screamed. And now the words and emotions came tumbling out. The woman just stood watching and waiting. Finally, he looked at her, pleading with her eyes. Could I, could I go instead? If you need someone to torture for an eternity, I'll go in their place. Would that work? Could I do that? He fell at her feet, crying and begging now, please, please let me go for my children. Please, I would be, I would be happy to, please. I'm begging you, please, please. Mackenzie, Mackenzie, she whispered, and her words came like a splash of cool water on a brutally hot day. Her hands gently touched his cheeks as she lifted him up to his feet. Looking at her through blurring tears, he could see that her smile was radiant. Now you sound like Jesus. You have judged well, Mackenzie. I am so proud of you. Very often we don't think about the emotion that fueled Jesus' decision to go to the cross and pay the penalty for our sin. That he loves each and every one of us so deeply, so completely, more than any father on earth could love his children that he himself would take their place and suffer that judgment. I'm reminded of the great lion in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia who gives himself up for one who has betrayed all of his brothers and sisters. So where in your life right now are you judging God? Where has God failed to meet your expectations of what God should or should not allow to happen. Make no mistake, there is a judgment. But God has provided a way for us not to suffer the consequences of that judgment.
Molly spoke about it earlier, but today we're going to take communion. It's one of those very few tangible sacraments that we do that signify a spiritual reality, and this is the spiritual reality. That when we partake of Jesus' body and blood, the bread and the cup, we are remembering in a very physical way what he did for us. That because God so loved the world, he sent his only son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus did the perishing so that we could have the life. We need to allow Jesus to be God. We need to allow Jesus to be God. We don't want to be those kinds of people who judge him. Either we are going to fall on our knees and claim him as Lord, or we are going to attempt to crucify him in various and sundry ways the rest of our lives. So when you come to communion today, remember the judgment that Jesus has suffered for you so that you don't have to, so that you can be welcomed into eternal places with laughter and joy, both now and for eternity. Please pray with me. Lord Jesus, we acknowledge your sacrifice. Thank you for what you've done for us. And now as we remember what you have done, bring it clearly to mind. Let us taste it today, Lord. All praise and glory and honor to you, Lord Jesus, the Mighty One, who will come again in glory to judge both the living and the dead and your kingdom will have no end. Amen.